It's days like this, moments like this, where we need to be sure where our foundation is at. And as we move along in our series called Built for Discipleship, so critical that we understand and constantly remind one another that our foundation is in Jesus Christ. We are about Christ. And so as we continue to move on with life, we move on with series and things such as that, we need to be sure why and who we're grounded in, and it's, it's Christ. Last week we went to phase two of our of our series and in, in where the Lord is taking us. And we talked about, we preached about the central theme of discipleship. Discipleship was erected out of our foundation, out of Christ. And discipleship is the direction that Christ has called us to out of Matthew 28. And clear, out of Matthew 28, we're able to come with a definition of how we define discipleship at Evergreen Church. You guys remember what that is? Right, it's in your brochures here, in, in, in the back here of our diagram. But discipleship is committing to intentional relationships that build Christ-likeness. Discipleship is committing to intentional relationships that build Christ-likeness. And today we're moving on to phase three. So phase three, as you can see, the foundation, we're about Christ. Central theme is discipleship. It's the direction we're headed straight upwards. And the purple blocks are, is phase three here. Phase three is talking about the discipleship essentials. Discipleship essentials. Just like when you're building a building, you need to collect steel, concrete, wood, glass. Those things are necessary. What is required for building disciples up? And I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2. And you could turn there with me if you like. Acts chapter 2. It's the book right after John. And Acts chapter 2, the early church is birthed. And the apostles, what do they emphasize? Acts 2.42 is where we get our discipleship essentials. Acts 2.42 says this. They were continually, this is the church, led by the apostles. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the four essentials that every follower of Jesus Christ needs to feed on and to feed one another with. God's word, fellowship, Christian fellowship, commitment to a local body, and to pray, to pray for one another. And so today we're going to begin with God's word. Today we're beginning with God's word. And so for the preaching, we'll be at 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me ahead of time. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's towards the end of the Bible. Go to your right some. And 2 Timothy chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question to the church family. What would you say to your child or someone you love dearly on your deathbed? What would you say to your child or someone who you love dearly on your deathbed? In other words, what are your final words that you want to say to someone you love so much? Paul was speaking to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy. He loved him dearly. He was a son to him. And he knew that Timothy was in the challenge of his life. Timothy was tasked to take over a church with a rich heritage, 
that enjoyed a lot of success. Timothy had to pastor a church that was set in the cultural epicenter of the world and the culture had a tremendous effect on the church members. And worldliness was rampant in the church. This is the church that he inherited. Members were becoming more and more carnal. They were lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, arrogant, unholy. They held to a false form of godliness. And they were confused over gender roles, over men and women in the home, in the church. There was a lot of confusion going on. He inherited a, a church with, with a pre-existing culture, a pre-existing way of doing things, pre-existing values, a church with a pre-existing leadership. Some were not even qualified to be leaders. These elders were sowing discord. These, some of these elders perhaps were re- even being the false teachers of the church. And they opposed him. And Paul thought about his young protege, knowing what type of challenge he was in, and he writes his final letter. So 2 Timothy is Paul, the Apostle Paul's final letter. And like I said, Paul loved Timothy dearly. And he's warning him, it's going to get worse, Timothy. It's going to get worse before it gets better. More difficulties coming your way, Timothy. And Paul knew his son well. He knew his son well. They had a deep relationship. And he was handing the baton off to him because Paul knew he was about to die. And Paul knew that Timothy had a tendency to be timid because he was young. He was, had less experience. He lacked confidence. And so Paul knew, like a father would do for his son or daughter, he knew, he knew he needed encouragement and some guidance. And he was giving him motivation to finish strong, to be faithful to the calling that Timothy was given. So as Paul sitting in a Roman prison in a hole in the ground, a Mamertine prison, he writes this letter knowing that he's going to be facing death soon. So where did Paul take Timothy? What does Paul, the apostle, take Timothy. He took him to God's word. He took him to God's word. And this is what we're going to read. Why did he take Timothy to Paul's word? I mean, to God's word here. We're going to be at 2 Timothy 3. We'll read from 13 to 17. We'll focus mainly on 16 and 17. But please rise as we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, 13 to 17. You'll be able to identify some of these themes in, in these verses here. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray your spirit will allow me to preach your word faithfully, with power, with conviction. I pray your spirit will embed these words, these truths into our hearts so that we know your son more. 
Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. As you're sitting there, I'm going to give you some of the, uh, the sermon notes up front so you can follow along easier. So we're going to ask this one question. Why is God's word a discipleship essential? I know we read it out of Acts 2.42, but today we're going to flesh out why is God's word so critical for discipleship? And so that question, why is God's word a discipleship essential? God, because number one, God's word is inerrant. If you want to write that down, inerrant, meaning without error, inerrant. God's word is a discipleship essential because God's word is authoritative. Number two, authoritative. It's commanding. As Christians, we sit under God's word. And number three, God's word is a discipleship essential because God's word is sufficient. Sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need to go anywhere else. Jury duty. That's one of the pleasures and joys and privileges of being an American citizen. Many of us have been called on to jury duty. I've been in jury duty. I've driven to downtown Los Angeles, parked off a temple someplace, walked across the street, and waited in line and, and to see if I would be called to serve on a jury. And I was a couple times, you know, a couple times. And uh, what I learned a lot is this: there's a critical aspect to every trial. Of course, you need the attorneys. Of course, you need the judge to perform his or her task. But the most critical element is the witness stand. The witness stand. Where the attorney presents evidence through eyewitness testimony or some kind of a testimony to support their argument. But what happens afterwards is there's cross-examination where the other attorney starts to cross-examine the witness. And in essence, they're trying to destroy the credibility of that testimony, right? That's what they're trying to do. And so the cross-examination is to expose any inconsistencies in the testimony. It's to expose any lack of qualification for this person to speak on whatever subject they're talking about. To expose their lack of character. This is not a trustworthy person sitting here or on the witness stand. We don't, we, let's dismiss everything that they just said or to even expose any ulterior motives that they may have. This is the role of the cross-examiner. And this is where the battlegrounds lie. It's, what evidence can we take to come to our conclusion? And in essence, when there's no credibility to the witness, there's no case. This is where the case is won and lost. And something similar happened in the beginning, you know, in the beginning in the book of Genesis. Immediately, Satan, our adversary, attacks God's word. Genesis chapter 3, right before the fall. What did Satan ask Eve? Has God said? Did he really say that? That you're not supposed to eat of this, of this tree? Oh, he did, did he? Then he goes on to attack his character. You won't die. God is lying to you. You can't trust him. And then ultimately he attacks God's motives and says he doesn't want what's best for you. That's why he's giving you all these restrictions, Eve. You can't trust God's word. This is what Satan does. He attacks God's word right from the beginning and attacks God's character. So let's hear today 
from God his own testimony about his word. This is what we're here to do, to understand what God has to say about his word. So why is God's word a discipleship essential? Number one, because God's word is inerrant, inerrant. Out of 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is inspired by God, the Bible says. This is God's own testimony. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture, what is this talking about? This is talking about holy writings, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the entire Bible, all scripture. All 66 books in the Bible that you hold in your hands. This is what Paul is writing about all scripture. And it says it's inspired by God. A better translation of this would be God breathed. So in the ESV, or if your translation says God breathed, all scriptures God breathed, that's a good translation. God breathed. In other words, God authored the entire Bible. All, not parts. It says all scripture. Every single word was authored by God. And in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Peter 1.21, 2 Peter 1.21, Bible says all prophecy comes to the Holy Spirit who moved men to speak for God. Meaning the Holy Spirit, God himself, inspired to move men to pen these words. This is what God is saying. Theologians refer to this as verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. If you're a good note taker, you want to take that down. This is what theologians call this whole process, verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal in the sense that God speaks through common words, human words. Verbal. Plenary means all of the scriptures, all-encompassing. Inspiration meaning God authored it all. And so in essence, I hold in my hands right here God's very words. 66 books of the Bible. 66 books. 39 Old Testament, or as my professor likes to call it, the First Testament. He doesn't want to call it Old Testament. It's just the First Testament. 27 New, uh, New Testament books. So the Bible is a compilation of 66 books. With different genres, there's narratives. There's history, there's poetry, there's wisdom, prophecy, epistles or letters. Written over a period of 1,500 years. It took 1,500 years to write Genesis to Revelation. Approximately 40 different authors authored this Bible that I hold in my hand, God's Word. Three different languages, originally in the Hebrew, the Greek, some Aramaic, Three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. From kings to common fishermen wrote the Bible, who God has inspired. He used every single personality of the authors to record the truths that he wanted us to know about him. Period. This is the Bible. And the Bible is God's witness to who he is. This is what we're talking about. God is on the witness stand right now from the pulpit declaring to you who he is through me because we have the Bible in our hands. And this is the means of grace. God didn't have to. Think about it. We have this Bible in our hands, but God didn't have to. But by grace, he allowed us to have his word in his hand so that we could know him rightly. He didn't have to. He could have left us in the dark and kept guessing. Just looked at nature and said, hey, there is a God, but I don't know him. 
Nature does declare, as, as Sister Ialco read through Psalm 19, the glories of God. That's general revelation, but special revelation to know God specifically is from God's word. I believe that's what the, the children went through today. Isn't that amazing? And I want to just make this very clear. Like we talked about from the witness stand, if the, the, the witness is not credible, the testimony is not any good. But we believe that God authored this because he says so. And since he authored it, it needs to be consistent with God's character. Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. That means that everything he authored is true. Let's turn to Psalm 19 here. I'm going to read Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is God's own testimony to the Bible. As you're turning there, we're going to read from 7 to 9, verse 7 to 9. Psalm 19, or Sister Ayako read. And God uses six different titles for his word. And six different uh, descriptions of the inerrancy of God's word. So Psalm 19, verse 7 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true. The Bible is inerrant, meaning without error. This is what we're talking about. Everything that you read, all the claims of the scriptures are true. This is where the battleground lies today. This is where Satan's working really hard to discredit the Bible, God's word. And it's completely trustworthy. We know this. It's all true. And where Satan has crept into the church, he's crept into seminaries where they abandoned inerrancy. He's crept into supposed Christian universities that have abandoned inerrancy. Basically, and, and when you abandon inerrancy, you're basically abandoning who God is. If God is the author of the scriptures, how can he make mistakes? God is perfect. This is an assault not only on his word, it's on God's character. And Satan has crept in. We need to be very clear that God's word is inerrant. This is, the Bible is the only, hear me now, The Bible is the only trustworthy source of truth to know God. The only. You may think some other things might be, but you don't know for sure. If you rightly understand the word, you just heard from God. The only trustworthy source of truth to know God. And to become, to come into relationship with Him, in essence. And to become like Him. The Bible. The Bible. This is clearly why, one of the reasons why this is uh, discipleship essential. We need to major in the Bible and God's word. And it's completely trustworthy. If you approach the word with some doubt that what you're reading is not right, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. I've been reading a book a couple times already, a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Here, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I mentioned this at a membership meeting one time. And Mark Dever, the author of this book, uh, tells about a, an encounter that he had. Let me read this for us. At a reception I once attended, the conversation turned to a book that had recently been published. I had read it because I was about to give a speech on the topic of the book. 
My host, a Roman Catholic, had also read it for review, for he was writing. I asked him what he thought. Oh, it was very good, he said. Except it was marred by the authors repeating that old Protestant error that the Bible is created that the Bible created the church. When we all know that the church created the Bible, which came first? Which came first? Did God's people create God's word? Or did God's word create God's people? Let me ask that again. Did God's people create God's word? Or did God's word create God's people? And if you want this book, I'll give it to you. Come see me after the service, okay? So it's been a very helpful book for us to kind of learn more of what a healthy church looks like, what a strong discipleship church looks like. We know that God's word came first. If you sat in Brother Keith's class today in Genesis, if you were in the Gospel Project session last week with the youth and the children, we know that in the beginning, God spoke and all the creation appeared. God's word came with authority and commanded everything to happen. Creation all of a sudden existed. We know that out of Genesis 12, some of us know that God spoke to Abram, later to be Abraham, and the nation of Israel was born. God's chosen people was birthed. We know out of Ezekiel 37, there's a vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, where Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy or speak God's word, preach to the dead bones. And what happens? The bones start shaking to come alive, and they, they get flesh and, and muscle and meat, and they become living people. Dead things came alive. And out of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, preaches the word of Christ, the word of God, and the church is born. Clearly, everything happens when God speaks. Clearly, that's where it all starts. God's word. And we actually have God's word in our hands. Isn't that amazing? The words out of the mouth of the living God. The living God. And the word of God owns a glory of its own. It doesn't need a defense, really. It speaks for itself. And the word of God has the authority to change lives. To give dead men and women life. And this goes to our next point. God's word is a discipleship essential because God's word is authoritative. Authoritative. Fill in the blank. Authoritative. All professing Christians believe this, that the Bible has authority. Any Christian should be able to understand this. It's not a normal book. It's not like Shakespeare or something else like that. This is God's book. This is a divine book. However, authority means different things to different people. And a friend of mine gave me this uh, section out of a book by J.I. Packer, and I thought this was very helpful. J.I. Packer, a champion for biblical inerrancy and authority in his day, gave three, three views of biblical authority. I'm going to start off with the traditionalist. The traditionalist, number one, traditionalist. Traditionalists view the Bible as divine. They believe this is from God. All right, good. But the Bible is not sufficient. It needs to be updated and added onto. And the Bible is not understandable by the common folk. Church leaders alone interpret and add or take away from the scriptures. 
Therefore, the authority is with the institutional church. Example of this is the Pope. The Pope is considered the head of the church, the final authority of the church. He's considered to have words equal to the scriptures. He even could add or augment the Bible. They've done this. In essence, a man, the Pope, sits in authority over the word because he could add and adjust to the scriptures. Let's look at the second view here. The second view is a subjectivist view, subjectivist view. They believe that the Bible is a product of outstanding religious insight. This is not a normal book. Okay, this is, there's something about this book. And this is what G.I. Packer writes. Like a chameleon, many different forms, but all its many varieties spring from a single principle. What is this single principle? Namely, that the final authority for my faith and life is the verdict of my reason, conscience, or religious sentiment. Meaning, my reason or my ability to think through things is will be set as a final authority over what is true in the Bible. In other words, the Bible picks and chooses whatever is whatever's authoritative in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson is probably the most famous one who did this, where he basically took the Bible and got out a pair of scissors and started cutting out, started cutting out things that he didn't agree with. And whatever was left, he goes, this is what I obey. All right? In other words, what is relevant to today, what is going to work, what is going to fit with our culture? Perhaps it's the I feel approach. I feel this is what this means to me. That may mean that that's what it means to you, but this is what it means to me. You know, in some ways we might even mystify the word. This is what the Bible means to me. In this model, this view, the authority is with the individual reader. Everyone gets to sit in authority of the Word of God. I think this view would fit really well in our culture today. So human reason sits over God's word. Now let's go to the third view here. This is the view that we believe here at Evergreen Church. The evangelical view, that's what he calls it, the evangelical view. In essence, the Bible is divine, inspired by God. God breathed, just like what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. J.I. Patrick says, its basic principle is that the teaching of the written scriptures is the word which God spoke and speaks to his church and is, and is finally authoritative for faith and life. God's word. God's word. And the church sits under the authority of the Bible. And the goal here is this, to understand authorial intent. As you look at every scripture, the question isn't, what does this mean to me? The question is, what did the author mean to, Holy Spirit-inspired author mean to convey? And from that, I extract the truth of that and then apply it to my life. There's only one true meaning. Although there may be some disagreements on some rare verses, there's only one true meaning. But variety, countless applications for what we're going through today, right? So the goal is, what, can, what is God speaking through Paul at a 2 Timothy 3.16? 3, from there, that's the truth. That's taking proper hermeneutical steps, context, understanding the words, understanding the arrangement of the words, so forth and so on. And that's the goal, authorial intent. This is where the Bible becomes your authority if you take that approach. What is God saying 2,000 years ago? It's the same truth back then as it is today. 
Different application may happen because different situations that are going on from Ephesus as it is to Evergreen Church in our own personal lives. Where it is where Christ rules his body through the Bible. And if you hold this view, this is going to go to our next section here of, 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 of Timothy 3.16. We believe, if you hold this evangelical view, we believe this. That the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Profitable. We sit under the authority of the scriptures and let it teach us. The scriptures become our teachers, our professors. The scriptures, the Bible, informs us of our doctrine and our theology. This is what this first section for teaching, this word in the original language talks about doctrine and theology and truths about God. Not just general teaching, but teachings about God and who he is. According to God's word. For reproof, it says, when we sit under the word as, it's, as our authority, we allow the word to shape our conscience for reproof. This is an idea of exposing doctrinal errors. Oh, I, I believe this about God, but that's not right, is it? Or to expose unrighteousness, sinful patterns, simple, sinful ways of thinking. It's like a spiritual x-ray machine. Think about it that way. where You're able to see underneath the skin of what's going on. Right? This is like a spiritual x-ray machine where you read the word and it's like, whoa, I can see I'm in error and whoa, it moves me to conviction. The Bible says it's also profitable for correction. Correction. When whenever we sit under the word of God as our authority, we believe that the Bible is our restorer, our restorer. If reproof is to simply expose or to diagnose the problem, for correction is to improve. It's, it's more in the positive. It's like putting your broken arm in a cast. It's to set the bones straight. Yes, x-ray showed that my arm is broken. I need to put it in a cast. And it's going to mend straight in how it's supposed to be. Think about that word picture. It goes beyond just exposing. Now it fixes us, you know, corrects us. Set straight to restore your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. That I may not sin against you. For training in righteousness, whenever we sit under God's word as our authority, the word becomes our parent. This word training is paideia, which is in essence covers raising our children. So parents, you understand what I'm talking about. We are in the authority of our children. Children, you're under the authority of your parents. So the, the, the word of God parents us to righteousness, right? It brings us to maturity, spiritual maturity, so to speak. And it builds Christ-likeness in us at Evergreen Church. So at Evergreen Church, we're submitted to the authority of God's word. This is what we believe. This is what we live. This is, why, this is what shapes our ministry. This is why we have expo- expositional preaching. This is why we commit to ACE, gospel project. This is why we believe in counseling each other with biblical truth, biblical counseling. I hope you can see this is influencing everything that we're doing here. Because the Word teaches us who God is. The Word exposes error in our lives. We need that. The Word informs us of what is true. The Word raises us to be more Christ-like, right? So that's authority when you actually come underneath the words and say, okay, this is gonna, I'm going to allow this to shape me. That's authority. 
My question to you is this. We know where our church's position is as a whole, but individually, are you submitted to God's word? As you're sitting there right now, say, wow, this is a new thought. This is very serious what the pastor is talking about. Perhaps that's floating through your mind right now. My question is, which of the three views do you land? As I describe those three views, which, which one of these do you identify with? Which one of these pricks your heart? For many, a guess is that it's a combination. Just like myself, I think it's a combination of things. I think we would say amen if you're professing believe the Bible is God's word. But the problem is this, for many of us, is it's authoritative in some areas of my life, but not others. I've reserved the right secretly between me and myself to kind of keep these areas under my own control and my own reign. Matthew 28, 20, remember the Great Commission? Christ says what? Teaching them to observe part of the things I commanded you. Some of the things that I commanded you. What is the word, church? All, that's right. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Everything. Everything. So here, let me run through a couple scenarios. Finances. Well, God knows that I need the money. I can't be giving to the church. He knows the plans that I have to build something or to go on this trip. He knows that we're trying to build a business. Perhaps ethics at work. Well, pastor, you understand, this is just how our industry is. If I didn't do it this way, if I didn't fudge a little bit, we go out of business or my competitors will just pass us. We, we, we just got to do it this way. Oh, really? Perhaps sexuality. Culture says it's not loving and I, I want to be loving. I want to be viewed as loving, right? Perhaps it's even headship in the home. Sisters, you might be senior. I'm more mature than my husband. Matter of fact, I'm a stronger leader than he is. I don't know about this. Reason, that's human reason. How about your private thought life? You know what, no one knows and no one's getting hurt. It's fine. No one knows. No one, I'm not going to really act on these things. It's going to be fine. Well, God knows. Singles, have you ever thought about this? Even considered considering marrying a non-believer. I've heard these things before. Well, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy, so I think it's okay. I know what the Bible says, but God wants me to be happy. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that's unacceptable. So these are just some things that perhaps you may have been struggling with. And what is the fruit of the discipleship? What are we trying to get out here? Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The fruit of discipleship is, is this. Because of our growing knowledge and love for Christ, our relationship with Christ is growing, we come under the authority of God's word in all areas of our lives. That's the hope of discipleship. This is what we're agreeing to as we come to Christ. I, yes, Lord, it's a process, but my love and trust and relationship you is growing, and I'm surrendering more and more areas of my life to you under the authority of your word. That is what we're looking for in discipleship. Going back to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, basically the main argument by Satan to uh, Eve is this. Can you really trust what God said? I think you need to hear some more. I think there's, there's my, my idea, Satan's idea, that you need to consider. That's one. 
And secondly, God is not enough. You need this shiny fruit. You need this to make you more happy. God's not enough. You need to consult outside things. You need something more than God and his word. That is the game plan that Satan runs over and over and over and over in our lives. You can count on it. That, it, it, it falls into that. I can't trust God's word or God doesn't know what's best for me. Right? That, that's really the game plan here. I mean, in 2 Timothy 3, 6, 13, we started off reading this. It says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Can you see that happening today? From bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You just got to turn on the television to understand that's happening, right? We're living in a dark era, church family. You know this. You know this. You know this. Things are not getting better, and they're not going to get better. We are desperate for a revival. You know what I'm saying is right. We are absolutely desperate for a revival in the San Gabriel Valley and in this world. One of my preaching heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, what is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or a revival? It is renewed preaching, not only, in a, in, not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a conviction for expository preaching, where you explain the meaning of the scriptures and preach it with conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that the work of the Word takes place in the hearts of men and women. Back to his quote. A revival of true preaching has a revival of true preaching has always, always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. The birth of the church, he points out. Peter and Paul in the book of Acts are preaching God's word. The church, boom, is, is birthed all over the place. Protestant Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley preached the word. And really the Reformation was about the scriptures. Exactly what we're talking about. They lost it. All of a sudden, the reformers brought it back to God's word, just like what Timothy is being instructed by Paul. The Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, the Wesleys, preached the word. That's what they did. And 2 Timothy is written to help Paul, I mean, help, help Timothy institute a revival in Ephesus. Reformation. This is a huge Restoration project assigned to Timothy. And where does Paul take Timothy? Does he take him to the school of Tyrannus and to learn more about philosophy of the world? Does he say, hey, why don't you study up on Aristotle a little bit more? Why don't you get more in tune to the culture and the culture of Diana and all these things? And you'll be a much more effective minister. Does he, does he take him there? Does he say that right here? Does he say, hey, let's learn more about humanistic psychology and kind of focus in on man? to fix their problems. Does, does he take them there? Does he say, hey, let's focus in on the government and how bad they are. Like, let's focus in on Caesar and, and the Roman Empire. No, he doesn't. He doesn't mention them. On Paul's deathbed, he takes him to the Word. That's exactly where he took him. That's exactly where he took him. He doesn't say, pump the brakes on God's Word, Timothy. He says, Press the gas pedal and go. Green light is on. Let's go, Timothy. We need more of God's word, not less. So let's go to our final point here. God's word is a discipleship essential because 
God's word is sufficient. Sufficient. Let me read verse 17 first. Sufficient, that means enough. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Who is the man of God? The man of God is Timothy himself. The man of God is specifically talking about preachers and teachers. In this case, Timothy. Timothy was super encouraged to recognize this man of God title. Paul, my mentor, is calling me a man of God because man of God was a well-known Old Testament uh, uh, title for people who prophesied and preached God's word. Man of God, Timothy. Man of God. Be true to this man of God. In the general sense, this could be used for Christians, any Christians. Any Christians. But specifically, it's talking about Timothy. And it says, so you'll be adequate, equipped, thoroughly furnished, completed, fitting to perform your calling, lacking in nothing. Equipped for every good work, Paul says. J.I. Packer jumps into our sermon again and says, It is a record, talking about the Bible, and explanation, a divine revelation, which is both complete or sufficient and comprehensible. It's sufficient and it's understandable. It's understandable for even the common man to understand. That is to say, it contains all that the church needs to know in this world for its guidance in the way of salvation and service. He goes on even to say, even gives principles how to interpret the Bible and understand the Bible. For every good work, for every good work, Ephesians 2.10 says this, what does it say? We're God's workmanship, poema, work of art. We're God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. Created for what? For good work, that's right. For good work. In the local church, every single brother, every single sister has a role to fulfill, to help build the big church, but specifically the local church. We're all part of the building process. Christ is the chief builder. He uses us as his workmen, right? You're a good work. You're a good work. Whether you've been called to be a leader at Evergreen Church whether you're called to be a teacher, whether you're called to serve in a special needs ministry, whether you're called to serve in a children's ministry, whether you're called to be a father or mother, an example in the church, we all have a role in the local church. What, and it should match up to your spiritual gifts. You know, you have the gift of service, you're generous, you have the gift of teaching, gift of compassion. It matches up with how God made us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that exciting? We all have a role. No one sits on the bench. No one sits on the bench. And I know all of us want to be faithful. As last week we talked about faithfulness is the goal that, that, that we want to achieve. So God's word is what? It's inerrant. It means without error. Complete, trustworthy. God's word is authoritative. This is the word that we submit under. Where else do we turn to? We certainly don't want to go on the internet to find answers to life. Thirdly, God's word is sufficient. Let's major in God's word and minor in the culture, okay? I think it's helpful to understand some things, but let's major in God's word and minor in the culture or or other things. Let me conclude here. Let's get into the mind of Paul a little bit because all of us are going to be on that deathbed someday. 
whether abruptly or gradually. All of us are going to be in that deathbed moment someday. Someday Paul would have his head severed from his body through a Roman executioner in Rome. Paul knew he would die, but he sends the one that he loves to God's word. Why? Why? In that moment, we're going to find out what we believe. Your family is going to find out what you believe in. In that moment, we're going to reveal our hand on what we actually believe. The reason why Paul went to God's word is this, because his entire life was built on the foundation of Christ. Where else would he go? Where else would he go? Let me read 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, just back up a little bit. You, however, talking to Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from them, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures. What is the work of the word here, guys? Which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Paul knew he was going to die, but Paul knew he was in Christ. This is it. That's it right there. God has told every single one of us who know the gospel how one could be saved. Saved from what? We're all going to die physically. We're going to be saved from a second death, spiritual death. The Bible says this, that we all have a disease called sin. And sin is a spiritual disease because we have offended God. We're God's enemies. And when we die, we will be judged as sinners and we experience a second death, which is an eternity apart from God in a place called literal hell. Saved from that judgment, friends, if you're not in Christ right now, please listen to what I'm saying. Through faith, belief, trust, Trust in who? In Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. This is what you're hearing right now. And who is Christ Jesus? Jesus Christ is God who created you, who spoke everything into existence. He's the God that created Israel. He's the God that gives life to dead, dry bones. He's the God that gave life and birth to a church. This is the God that we believe in. And the Bible says this, this God put on human flesh, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, and took on God's wrath so that those who have faith, who trust, who believe in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he has authority over me and he is my Savior, you will be saved. This is the promise that we talk about. So friends, if you're here today, you know you're not a Christian. Let these words marinate in your mind and your heart. And Christian brothers and sisters, let's be clear what the gospel is. We surrender our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen? Because in that day, by God's grace, if we have that opportunity, we will point people to the word of Christ on our deathbed. 
And in that day when we transfer from life into eternity, Christ will take care of us for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Thank you that you gave us the grace to know you through your written word. Thank you for your Bible. Father, I pray if we need to repent because we have not taken your word seriously enough that we will do this and we will respond by being getting serious of studying your word and to study and to submit to it. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we read your word and we seek to understand what you're, you meant to say, that this will grow our devotion, our love for you, Lord Jesus, that we will, because we'll get to know you more. Lord, help us avoid this spiritual arrogance or spiritual uh, uh, arrogance that comes through knowledge, Lord. Allow our relationship with you to grow with you and with one another through deeper understanding of your word. Father, will you develop a strong and loving discipleship culture here at Evergreen Church, Lord? I pray, Lord, that the word would flow everywhere from the pulpits, from the classroom, to the moms groups, to the children, to the youth, to the college, to the young adults, to the harvesters, to everywhere. And even in our interpersonal conversations, we will be talking to each other about the word of Christ. We will be correcting each other through the word of Christ. We will be reproofing each other through the word of Christ. We will be encouraging and training and comforting each other through the word of Christ. I pray these things will happen here at church at Evergreen, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in our church family. In Jesus' name, amen.